Take your Bibles and turn to Titus, and uh, we're going to start looking at the subject of Paul as he deals with the topic here in front of us of ministerial qualifications. Um, there's no way that I can study this topic and not be aware myself that I'm standing up here in front of you and that this is this is a pretty intimidating thing exercise for me to do that because we're looking at a topic that that I am directly accountable to and responsible for and an evaluation of my ministry which by the way the evaluation of leaders there is not primarily academic now academic is very important but these qualifications that are listed in this this text here are qualifications of moral integrity and uh, public display of the life and the character of the person uh, behind it. So they are very, very important. And um, Paul covers this topic several times, uh, both here and in Timothy. And obviously it's very important to see the qualifications, if you will, that are considered to be of primary importance with those that are in spiritual leadership. And uh, so I want to open in prayer and then ask that uh, the Lord help us go through some of these texts as we begin to look at it. So let's open in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours to know you. I'm aware of the fact as we talk about this that we are on display. We're on, dis on display all the time. And uh, while it will take a lifetime for us to build a testimony of integrity. It only takes one or two stupid slips to destroy that testimony. And the testimony is really very important in these, in these uh, verses because these are verses that represent those who are supposed to represent you and to be like your shepherd, your spokesman. And so um, I pray that this morning as we're looking at them that you will Give me liberty of expression and give us uh, understanding uh, as we are approaching the text. It's very important. And I just pray, pray for my life. Um, I realize that much of what I say, that uh, there are many things here that I stretch and tongue in cheek trying to say that I match these things, but there are, there are inadequacies in my life and uh, that there are areas that need desperate attention and uh, confrontation perhaps. And so, I thank you. I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for your forgiveness and your patience. And yet at the same time, we know that the call that you've given to us is not one to be taken lightly and to be passed off with a little casual nod of the head or the wave of the hand. It's not important because we are, we are fallen creatures. Yes, we are fallen creatures, but we are to be saved from that fall and we are to be growing and looking more like the savior for whom, with whom we represent. So it's a serious time. And I pray that you'd be speaking to us and pray that you help us not to think that these are qualifications for those who are pastors and everybody else is, can sit down and not pay attention because these are qualifications that you list that are for anybody that uh, is breathing, that's a believer, because all of us have areas of responsibility and all of us have areas of influence and our influence will be effective to the degree that our walk with you is close. And vibrant and we realize there is a direct proportion that uh, relates to that the, the, the degree that we are following you is that degree that we will have an effect and to the degree that we have turned our back on you or living for self 
is that that degree we will be producing a selfish and and unchristlike and godless and worldly fruit out of our lives. So help us to take these things seriously, I pray. And I ask it in the name of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray with thanksgiving. Amen. All right, here's just me look at the text here that's in front of us in Titus. We looked at the first uh, four or five, four verses. We come to verse five now. We go down to verse nine, where he talks about these qualifications. Let me read them to you, and then we'll come back and sort of touch on them. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort within sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's a mouthful there. We won't get real far in it, but we'll get started. Hey, Jay, it's good to see you. Hey. Uh, a couple of things there at the beginning of this text. Notice uh, Paul is writing Timothy about leaving him in Crete. Obviously, as I mentioned before, we don't know exactly the timeline, but we are pretty well certain that this ministry took place after the first imprisonment but before his second imprisonment and Paul had been ministering in the area of Macedonia had gone down to Crete and evidently Titus was there and he is leaving there but he's leaving Titus to be doing some work there in the churches that need his involvement and his input um, because Titus is a Gentile um, there is some maybe a little bit of uh, rubbing of the feathers, if you will, with some of the Jewish converts, because there was that little, um, I don't know if I would say rebellion, but a uh, little bit of resentment maybe from some of the Jewish people that somebody is a Gentile who, who eats ham, who lives a, like a Gentile, who may have all kinds of uh, habits and traditions that a Gentile would have that would be strictly forbidden by the Jews. The Jews might resent somebody coming in from outside the Jewish circle and walking into the circle and yet having through the gospel a, a stand that is exactly equal to their stand as a godly committed uh, dedicated Jew throughout his life and the Jewish people might look at that in fact they did to some degree resent that and you know the story of the Jerusalem Council and some of the leaders that came down to Antioch to try to change uh, or to establish the fact that Gentiles did in fact need to keep some of the basics of the law, including circumcision and other things in order to be accepted. And so Paul, and, and we all know that Titus was among them, refuted that and Titus was a Gentile and he was a Gentile who happened to have a spiritual position, it seems as an elder because he was to appoint elders. So he had a position of leadership and uh, he was accepted, he was, it was, determined at the council when they had this discussion and they discussed it back and forth with the different leaders that though Titus was not circumcised, he did not need to be circumcised in order to be included with and part of the leading, leading council there in that decision-making process. And so he was accepted. 
And so Paul here in this passage in Titus is leaving Titus back in this island of Crete for that very responsible position of establishing uh, elders, leaders in the churches. An elder, the general, it's a general word that would speak of a man who is older, but it came to have an official application to the church of those who were older and had spiritual leadership in the church, an overseer, presbyteros. And so there, there are uh, those who are recognized, and we know that because we use the term here. We have elders and we have elder board and we have those that meet. And they are those that have a position of leadership. God does function uh, in society and in the church with a kind of a chain of command. And he has leadership structure and things like that. That's true not only here in the church, but that's true throughout the country. That's uh, also true throughout the universe. You have, you have uh, all kinds of angels and principalities and powers and all kinds of um, descriptions of various standards of leadership in the angelic community as well, which gives gives us understanding that there are ranks of angels and there's not all angels are, are archangels and there are angels that have various responsibilities. Some are categorized as Gabriel was, uh, as an angel that who was designated as I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God. That's what he told Zacharias, if you remember. That is a very, very, very prestigious title for Gabriel to have. He is Gabriel. He is Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And not all angels, I mean, all angels would stand around the throne and worship, but he was one who stood in the presence of God, who had a very exalted position. And he told uh, Zacharias there in that uh, when when he had made the pronouncement that he, he and Elizabeth were going to have a son, and Zacharias had questioned that, he said, listen to me, son, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and because you're doubting my word, you're not going to speak or be able to say anything until that child is born. Don't question the authority of one who comes from the presence of God and stands down in that little temple with you and, and gives you instructions. And so this is a, this is a very uh, good picture of the position of the angels. If you're in Revelation, and you'll find that there are all kinds of positions of living creatures and elders and those that are seated. And you'll find that there are angels who, who have uh, positions like there are those who have trumpets, that they're, they are appointed to be the ones who blow the trumpets for these set various plagues and other things that take place. God is a God of order. And he does, in fact, take administration seriously, much more seriously probably than we take it, unless you happen to be my son. Uh, we... we uh, kind of I know that I do too it works sometimes we, we kind of abuse things or we we get we friends with the boss and so we can kind of use that friendship or whatever but God takes it seriously it's not something to be toyed with and uh, administration uh, is is a sign of wisdom and the reason I say that is if you'll turn to the Old Testament and you look at Solomon and you'll see that in the description of the wisdom that Solomon has, there was this woman who was entitled, who was given the title of Queen of Sheba. She came up and she came to investigate the stories that she had heard of the wisdom of Solomon. And she watched his life. And among the things that she observed was his administrative gift of the standing of the people, the clothing, the seating, the way that his records were kept, and, and all of the leadership and all of the administration, all of the organization, and all of the structure, and all of that in her mind, was a reflection of the greatness of the wisdom of Solomon. And that just tells us that these things all reflect 
a real understanding of, of things and how things can be put together administratively and orchestratively to, to be orchestrated in a way that produces the right kind of outcome and the right kind of result. We're seeing, we see that all the time in government here. Um, I know that we are in the middle of some struggles right now with the presidential election and I don't, and or whatever, and I don't have all the answers, but I do know God's in charge. I do know he's working behind the scenes. And I personally think he's setting the stage for uh, the end times. I think he's getting things ready, um, whatever. And uh, so I know he's in charge. I know things are not out of control, but there are times when they look like they're out of control. That's all right. We only see from our limited perspective. And, and what we do in times like that is it causes us to cling to what we do know. So here's, here's Paul. And he's writing to Timothy, to Titus rather, he's telling Titus that I've met you there in Crete so that you can set in order. The idea of setting in order, uh, two things to set in order uh, and uh, appoint elders, that's what he is. And set in order has to do with making things straight. It was used, it's, it's uh, used to speak of setting bones that were broken or taking like arms that were crooked or legs that were crooked and making them straight, the same kind of idea. And uh, so Paul looks at these churches, which, by the way, it's interesting. Now, Crete's an island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. But that gives you a picture here of how the gospel had spread because it had also spread to this island. And he's saying appoint elders in every city. I don't know if it's every single city, but that's what he says. And uh, it just tells us that in every city there is a church some kind of organizational structure and of, of believers and there's a church and I want you to go and appoint elders in every city and set things straight, get things in order. So you've got your hands full. That kind of gives us a picture of the responsibility that Paul was entrusting into this Gentile leader. That's a massive responsibility. He did the same thing with Timothy. He put a lot of faith in Timothy and gave him a lot of, a lot of credit uh, as a leader, he said one time that he didn't have anybody else in the church that had the same heart as Timothy does, that, that would parallel his own heart. But he did have a lot of faith in Titus, and he had a lot of faith in Timothy, and he put a lot of work, work and responsibility in them. And it just shows us, number one, it shows us the faith he had in Titus, but number two, it shows us the heart of Paul. He's concerned for the churches, which is something that only God can do. He, it's the Lord that gives us that burden and that concern for people. You talk about that when you were saved, that it was the Lord that gave you a love for people. And uh, it is true because we now, we naturally love ourselves. And uh, we are on our, our best uh, friend and the people, uh, you know, politicians all the time are talking about how they're concerned for the people and how they're concerned for the poor and how they're concerned for the down and out, stuff like that. But the people they're generally speaking are really concerned for the people who look back at them in the mirror. And they are doing everything they can to exalt their position many times and they're using the people and using these other things as a platform to exalt themselves. So the only one that can really give us a real heart is the Lord. And that's why Jesus gave us that great commandment. Number one, to love the Lord your God. That's first. With all of your whole heart, mind, your soul, your being, your, 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 yourself. And then love your neighbor as yourself. God's the one that does that. He's the only one that can do that. So he's the one that helps us to do that. So here is Paul. And he's writing to Timothy about setting in order the things that remain, thing, make things straight, uh, help to straighten out confusion, help to straighten out the difficulties. Um, 
that is not only the big responsibility, but it says that Timothy had some pretty good gifts to be able to do that. It's kind of, he had to be recognized by the church and by the people. And so he would come into the church and he would make those decisions. So he wanted to, to set aside and to make those things straight, set aside the things, um, make things straight in the church in every city, as I have directed you. And uh, these are the idea that he says, uh, as I have directed you, just, I think, kind of helps us to see that Paul has been working with Timothy for a while. He's given these directions, these instructions. He's leaving these things in Timothy's hand as he is now leaving. He's going to be gone. And so he's entrusting this into Timothy's care. There are many places or several places in the New Testament where we're told uh, the things you've heard and learned and seen in me, these entrusted faithful men that will be able to carry this ministry, this teaching, this on to others. We have that. We have that burden and that responsibility we have it too that's one of the reasons why we teach Sunday school that's why one of the reasons why we work with our children that's why Dora was talking about her kids because she's concerned about them because they've been working with their kids for years and sometimes you know it the, the most difficult part of the ministry is working with people if we didn't have to put up with people it would be relatively easier to do study and teach but you have to work with people and people always when we're in the side we're back here to pray I'm, I'm going to use the illustration. When I started to pray, uh, Pete walked in there and said, Dad, you sit down there. Now, don't leave. Stay right here. We're coming right back. Because he knows I'm going to get up and go do something. And stuff like that. So working with people is a hard thing because uh, a lot of times people don't cooperate. They don't agree. They're busy doing other stuff. They got their own agenda. They got their own point of view. And they, it's hard to do that. And so we were talking about that this morning in Sunday school, how that we're working with, we want to work with our kids. And we want to share the gospel with him. But I'm going to tell you something. If you really want to see success, you need to be in prayer. Because God is the only one that can open the heart and speak to the heart and challenge the heart. And we can work and do whatever we want to do. And we can have a, a very good testimony, a very good life. But if God is not working in their hearts, then it's going to be, it's going to be dead. It's not going to be there. Because they are spiritually dead just like we were. And the only way the gospel is going to bear fruit is if the Lord comes in and performs that heart surgery, opens up their heart so that they can hear and respond to the message. So Timothy is being, Titus is being left there in that city, of, in that island of Crete, uh, so that he can set in order the things that remain. And then he begins in verse 6 to kind of list some things there. Uh, he says there in verse 6, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, uh, having children who... Who believe and not accused, accused of dissipation or rebellion. Um, let's, we'll, we won't get through all of that, but we'll start with it just briefly. Notice he says there, if any man is above above reproach, that, that has been translated or has the idea, it was Weiss, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but Weiss was saying that it has to do with being able to, to bring any kind of accusation against their life. Now, I've been in the ministry long enough to know that people don't need a lot of ammunition to be able to bring a, a, a charge against people in the ministry. It doesn't take much. Uh, in fact, they don't, it doesn't take anything. They get their feelings hurt about something and they can walk away and shake their head and they can be mad at the preacher and the pastor. The preacher didn't do anything. The church didn't do anything. They were doing what they're supposed to be doing and they can walk away and be mad. And that happens a lot. Well, what we don't want to do is we don't want to be involved of giving ammunition 
to those. I think it was um, when Moses beat the rock instead of speaking to the rock. You remember the Old Testament? The Lord told him to speak to the rock, and he got mad and he he hit the, took his his staff and hit the rock. And the Lord said to him, "said You're not going to go. You're not going to be able to go to the promised land." Now, why so severe? He said, "Because you need to treat me as holy, and you're not." In other words, people are people are judging the character of God through the disobedience of Moses. And God says that's really very severe, and people do that sometimes with us. We we walk in a way that is disobedient, or that is reflective of a personal lifestyle and i do that i i struggle with that all the time at lowe's i know what it's like um and they it's just we have friends there and friends come around and they start talking and they put their arm around your shoulder and stuff like that and uh, you you don't want to be a bad testimony you don't want people to make a judgment about god based on my character my disobedience or my lust or my selfishness, or my greed, or my uh, being preoccupied with other things. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, and people can do that. People can, they can get their feelings hurt just like that, walk away and say all kinds of things. So we, we want to be careful. It does matter how we live and how we walk. It does make a difference what our life is like and what comes out of our life. And so he's just saying here in this passage to be above reproach, and that's so important. In fact, he he repeats that. You look on your verse, look down at verse seven. He says, for an overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Uh, we are, we are, what is a steward? A steward is a person that's responsible for somebody else's property. And if you turn to the scriptures and you find where in the scriptures it talks about um, that, that Jesus, in, in, I think he's talking about um, shepherding my flock and uh, being a shepherd over my flock, over and over again, the thing that stood out to me, and I don't have the exact reference in front of me, but this morning as I was looking at it, over and over and over again, the thing that stood out was that the flock is not mine, but his. It's his church. It's his flock. We're his sheep. And as a shepherd or an overseer, we are responsible for shepherding and giving direction to the property that belongs to the Savior. And we want our leadership to bear the mark of godliness and, and holiness to the people so that it reflects a good thing to them and turns them to him rather than to some perverted position that I may have or some perverted pet peeve that I may have or whatever. And we can do that. We all have our pet peeves. And uh, well, it doesn't matter what it can be. All kind of, sometimes we, have, we favor a certain translation or we, we favor a certain doctrine or something. And we, we have our pet peeves and we can kind of foster that and push that on other people as a, as a personal preference. And that becomes a, an issue, the bigger issue, rather than having people to look at Jesus and want to see him and to fall in love with him. Um, in the, the, the concluding part of John's gospel, in fact, we can turn to it, and we're kind of getting near the end of this, but the concluding, concluding part of John's gospel, uh, remember John, uh, Peter had uh, kind of blown it by um, denying the Lord, getting a bad testimony, and done some things. Now all of us, we, we, we identify with Peter because Peter is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. 
just like we tend to put our foot in our mouths as well. But in the concluding of, of uh, the Gospel of John, uh, in that passage, there, let me see if I can find it here. In John Realm, verse uh, 13, 15, it says, so when they had finished breakfast, uh, this was at the end after Jesus had appeared, had been crucified and resurrected, gone, and he'd come back down before he ascended finally that last time. And he told the disciples, we'll meet you out in the Sea of Galilee, and uh, we'll meet you up in, in Galilee. And they, Peter, they were sitting around, and Peter got tired of waiting. And as he had done on three occasions, he said, I'm going to go fishing. So they get up, get in the boat, go, we'll go with you. They're going to go out of the boat. Like that's the leadership of Peter. Everybody follows somebody that's got to be now. So they all go out to the boat and they're fishing. And uh, then they, the Jesus on the side of the shore says, Did you catch any fish? So he brought them net on the other side and they caught a bunch of fish. And so they, they say, Oh, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps down, he, he swims to shore. Jesus has a fire there. They eat breakfast. After breakfast, um, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And does he, is he talking about, do you love me more than these disciples? Because remember earlier, uh, they had said, um, when they were saying someone's going to deny me, they, uh, they all began to look at themselves. And Peter said, well, these may deny you, but I would never deny you. Talking about <laughs> disciples. Do you love me more than these disciples? Or he could have been talking about the fish. Do you love me more than just going fishing or whatever? He could have been talking about a number of things. I think, I think the critical issue is not, I mean, I'm not sure which he's talking about that. I think he's, I, I, but I think the critical issue, he's saying, you need to love me most. Whatever else is secondary needs to only be down on this. I need to be the one that you love the most. And that's why he's asking, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. And then he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, he was grieved. And he said to him the third time, uh, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. And what he's saying there is the motivation that, that you should have if you're going to work with my sheep, if you're going to deal with my property, is you need to love me. You need to be concerned for me. You, I need to be first. And I think that's true. I know that's true for the leadership in the church. It's really true for all of us. He says, that, what is the greatest commandment? Love you, Lord, your God, with all your mind, so being in your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't come by accident. In fact, if you just think about it, sometimes you think, well, the Lord is boring. Just think about him. It's kind of boring to just think about the Lord. But that's because we don't really know him. We need to invest. We need to invest time. Uh, make some, make one of the, one of the best counsels I can give you as a pastor is what I know is to make room in your day every day to spend a little time, do it preferably in the morning in the Word of God, and just ask God to speak to your heart, and let that begin your day, begin a habit, because it will it will mold your day, it will give you an outlook on your day, it will give you encourage and strength and purpose and pursuit for the day that you can't get anywhere else. I had a man ask me one time at work. I mean, I went in at seven o'clock, and he came in, and he 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 I said good morning and stuff, and he, he giving the money and stuff. He said. Are you deliberately trying to be cheerful? You're always cheerful in the morning. Are you deliberately doing that? Or how do you, why do you do that? I said, well, 
I don't know, I guess that's because I spent time with the Lord in the morning. I just told him that, and he was kind of quiet, and he walked away like that. But I thought that was interesting. He thought I was deliberately trying to be cheerful and trying to be happy. And um, I do. I don't try to be unhappy. I don't I don't gripe and complain. I don't, people, my knee bothers me. And, and uh, sometimes I'll say, I'm, they give me a chair. They're very sweet to let me do that, sit down because the knee bothers me. But I don't gripe and complain about that. I don't think we should. We have too much to be thankful for. We just, we are so, so, so blessed. God is so good to us. And uh, so we have, we have everything to live for. So, so here's, here's, uh, here's the Lord talking to Peter. And he's saying, these things, you, you love me, you focus on me. Am I the purpose and the pursuit and the, 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 the uh, one that you live for and love the most? That's kind of the motivation that we should have. And so if we do that, we're seeking to follow him. I'm going to stop here because we're going to be running out. I need to get into the, the text, and I'll do that next time. But we need to see that, that priority, I think, in our lives is Jesus needs to be first. He really does. Not just in some academic theory, but in practice. He's often not in my life as he should be because I get sidetracked, and I do other things, and I... I have distractions and I have them, I have them every day and there are all kinds of things. And I find my mind wandering or I find my lust or I find my desire for something more. Just all kinds of distractions that pull me away and I have to stop and say, no, this is not right. Lord, help me to focus on you. Help me to come to you and, and to serve you and to live for you because he is the purpose he is the hope and and you know what we build we 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 build this response bible said talks about looking on a woman to lust after her and uh, that's a habit that's a that's a that's a habit that you build into your life if you stop that habit and break that habit it's easier if you give into that habit it builds a a pattern in your life that just increases 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 and you get to be the kind of person that you can't talk about or look about or think about a woman without lusting you say, well, how do you know? Well, I know what it means to build us. I know what it means to build <coughs> And yet I also know that you can build habits in your life that are good habits. And as a leader in the church, that is extremely, extremely important. And you want to, your people in the church to know that. Uh, you want your children to know that. You want your friends to know that. You want your life to have an impact. The impact will be to the degree that you're walking close to the Lord and that, that, that his life impacts you. And that's, that's, really, that's really where the rubber meets the road. So we're going to be looking at some of these things. They're not academic requirements. They are moral requirements of the life, but they they show that we are focusing our life and our walk with the Lord on the Savior and that his priorities are being reflected in the things that we seek to follow and the things that we do. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, let me just close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this time. And do thank you for your, your goodness to us. And I, I really thank you for your abundant mercy, which you have poured out in my life. Bible says you are rich in mercy. And I am so thankful for that because I would be, I would be dead meat if it were not for your mercy and grace. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for your patience. I realize that as a child, I'm one of your problem children. I'm many times difficult. And, uh, but I thank you for your patience and your love and your care. And I pray that you'll help me to walk in obedience to you. Thank you for this passage that I've now been forced to study. And as I study this passage, I've been forced to look in the mirror of your word in my life. And uh, that's a good thing, even though 
it shows me many things that, that need to be done. That's a good thing. Help us to do that. Help us to do it every day because that's where the hope is. That's where the life is. That's where the change is. That's, that's where you give us hope but because our lives don't have hope by itself. We don't have hope meditating on our belly button. We only have hope if we come to know you and serve you. And so I pray that you help us to do that. Thank you for this time and thank you for this church. And we ask for blessing upon it. We pray in Jesus' name, thanksgiving. Amen.